0: As-salamu alaykum. Welcome back to another Islamic History exclusive production. This will be the first episode about the Soviet-Afghan war. Now, I know, I understand, you were probably expecting another season of the Umayyads, and inshallah, I promise you, we will return to that series. But... When it comes to the Soviet-Afghan war, I've been reading and studying about this event for years, and honestly, it's high time we finally talk about it. So that's it. We don't need much more of an introduction than that. I think we should just go ahead and get right into it. Let's begin at the beginning with the foundation of the modern state of Afghanistan. So we're going to begin by discussing Afghanistan between the years of 1826 to 1973. And it starts with the founding of the Emirate of Afghanistan in 1826 by Dost Mohammed Khan. Dost Mohammed Khan was soon overthrown by the British who went and established an exile ruler in his stead. This led to the First Anglo-Afghan War, which we have discussed in a previous series many, many years ago. I think back in 2015 or something like that. We discussed this this war in a three-part series where the British were eventually ran out of Afghanistan. The British did what many other conquering armies, including the Soviet Union, including the United States, the British conquered the capital Kabul and established themselves in a few other surrounding areas but were never able to fully subdue the entire nation of Afghanistan or the entire area of Afghanistan and they were eventually ran out of there. This pattern would repeat itself with both the Soviet Union As we're going to talk about in this series and later on the United States, which who knows, maybe we'll get into that too one day in the future. Inshallah, Allah knows best. So the British were ran out of Afghanistan. Dost Muhammad Khan came back, took over again in 1843, and he ruled until his death in 1863. He was succeeded by his son Sher Ali Khan, but Sher Ali Khan had a lot of trouble in maintaining his authority and controlling his own subjects. Well, he was eventually overthrown, spent some time in Russia, came back from Russia, overthrew his own usurper, and retook the country. After retaking the country, Sher Ali Khan tried his best to balance afghanistan's loyalties between russia and great britain this was during the time of the great game if you don't know much about the great game i really don't want to get too deep into it right now we have discussed it in previous series both in our series on world war one as well as the series on the first anglo-afghan war by the way if you want to hear the first anglo-afghan war the uh, series that i did on that Simply go to islamichistoryexclusive.com, choose the free option, and you'll find the series in there, completely free. Sher Ali Khan, however, perhaps because he had spent so much time during his exile in Russia, he tended to lean more towards Russia than towards Great Britain. Great Britain didn't like that, and so this led to the Second Anglo-Afghan War, where Britain invaded again in 1878. The British were victorious, they were able to remove Sher Ali Khan, replaced him with his son, Yaqub Khan, who then became the ruler of Afghanistan. Great Britain invaded yet again in the following year, in 1879, when one of the envoys was killed in Afghanistan. Yaqub Khan abdicated and was replaced by Abdurrahman Khan. Abdurrahman Khan was Yaqub Khan's cousin and Sher Ali Khan's nephew, Abdurrahman Khan became the ruler of Afghanistan in 1880. So we can follow the progress. Abdurrahman Khan was a nephew of Sher Ali Khan. Sher Ali Khan was a son of Dost Muhammad Khan. And Dost Muhammad Khan founded the Emirate of Afghanistan. So hopefully you understand how everything went from then. Anyway, Abdurrahman Khan, who is now in charge of Afghanistan, the ruler of Afghanistan, he is considered the founder of, of modern Afghanistan. During his reign, Great Britain and Russia, I guess they got tired of fighting each other over this little piece of land. Though Afghanistan is not really little. I guess they got tired of fighting each other. And so they came together and defined the borders of Afghanistan during this period. And That's how he got the modern borders of Afghanistan. So Abdurrahman Khan, he ruled until his death in 1901. He was succeeded by his son, Habibullah Khan. And Habibullah Khan maintained good relations with Great Britain, kept him from getting invaded anymore by them for a while, but only for a while, you'll see in a moment. Great Britain also managed uh, Afghanistan's foreign affairs, so they were pretty much doing the whole puppet thing with, uh, with Afghanistan by now as well. Eventually, World War I came along. World War I came along, and most Afghans, most people living in Afghanistan, supported the Ottoman Empire. The ruler of Afghanistan, Habibullah Khan, the son of of the founder of Afghanistan, Abdurrahman Khan, Habibullah Khan wanted to remain neutral. He didn't want to join the British, but he didn't want to really throw in with the Ottomans either, because once again, he was pretty much a puppet of the British. However, this neutrality was seen as a little bit too pro-British. As I mentioned, the Afghan people in general supported the Ottoman Empire during World War I. Well, just after the the war was over in 1919, Habibullah Khan was assassinated in Afghanistan and he was succeeded by his son, Amanullah Khan. Amanullah Khan was completely opposite from his father and wanted the British out of Afghanistan, And he went to war with the British that same year, in 1919. This ultimately led to the Treaty of Rawalpindi. This was the third Anglo-Afghan war in 1919, and it was really a stalemate. The reason is the British were overly stretched and fatigued from world war one remember world war one ended in 1918 is now 1919 britain has all this new territory to try to maintain and control they didn't really have the strength nor the energy for a prolonged war in afghanistan and afghanistan itself didn't have the military material and the military prowess to go toe-to-toe with great britain either so ultimately it was a bit of a stalemate It led to the Treaty of Rawalpindi, which basically ended Great Britain's direct influence in Afghanistan, meaning that now Afghanistan was free to do as they wanted with their foreign affairs. Great Great Britain pretty much said, we're done, do as you want. And that's what happened. So with this new freedom, Amanullah Khan, the ruler of Afghanistan, was able to sign a Treaty of Friendship, with the Soviet Union, beginning the long relationship between Afghanistan and the Soviet Union. And yes, it was the Soviet Union by this time. If you remember from our series on World War One, if you haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to go listen to it. The Soviet Union was born during World War One during the well in the aftermath I should say of the Russian Civil War or the Russian Revolution where the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar and killed the Tsar's entire family and established the Soviet Union, the Communist Soviet Union so by 1919 the Soviet Union was in existence. But things were not really all smooth in Afghanistan between the years of 1928 to 1931 a civil war and terrible infighting raged across Afghanistan and Amanullah Khan was eventually forced to abdicate the throne. Eventually, his cousin, Nadir Khan, became ruler of Afghanistan, but Nadir Khan didn't last very long either. He was assassinated in 1933 and he was succeeded by his son, Muhammad Zahir Shah. Muhammad Zahir Shah became the king in 1933, and he finally brought some stability back to Afghanistan and ruled for the next, get this, 40 years. He ruled for 40 years until he was overthrown in 1973. So that's the history of Afghanistan, well, the political history of Afghanistan from 1826 to 1973. In 1973, Muhammad Zahir Shah was overthrown by his cousin, Muhammad Dawood Khan. We'll just call him Dawood Khan to not get all the Muhammad's mixed up. Dawood Khan overthrew his cousin, who was the king, King Muhammad Zahir Shah. And from that point on, everything went down the drain. We're going to talk about that going down the drain right now. Now, Dawood Khan, who was this Dawood Khan, this cousin of the king who overthrew him? Daoud Khan joined the military of Afghanistan, and he served as the minister of defense for his own cousin, the king, for a couple of years. He then went on to serve as Afghanistan's prime minister for 10 years, from 1953 to 1963. While he served as prime minister, as PM of Afghanistan, Daoud Khan began to promote Pashtun Nationalism The Pashtuns are an ethnic group Within Afghanistan And we're going to talk more about The different ethnic groups in Afghanistan In the next episode, inshallah But just so you know Dawood Khan began to promote Pashtun Nationalism And advocated for a greater Pashtun state Which he termed Pashtunistan Here's the problem though This hypothetical greater Pashtun state included a huge portion of Western Pakistan. And of course, the Pakistani government wasn't trying to hear this. This didn't make them happy. And so this strained relations between Afghanistan and Pakistan for a while. Anyway, the king, Mohammed Zahir Shah, and this is my own personal opinion, I seem to think that this guy actually wanted the best for his nation. Mohammad Zahir Shah seemed to have been perhaps not perfect. And I didn't really go deep into his history, but just reading about the moves he made and how long he ruled, he did rule for 40 years. It seemed as if he was trying to do the best for his nation, but unfortunately things didn't quite work out for him. But we'll, we'll get into that right now. In 1964, Afghanistan presented a new constitution and the King approved it. This new constitution Banned members of the royal family from holding political office. This meant the king's cousin, Daud Khan, could no longer be prime minister, and he could no longer be involved in the states in the in the nation's politics. King Zahir Shah wanted what's known as a constitutional monarchy, something like Great Britain, where you have a ruler, a king, uh. Monarch, whatever And they don't have any political power They reign, but they don't rule This means the laws of the country are created and maintained and passed and argued over By some sort of legislative representative uh, body Like a congress or parliament and the king or whatever, or the emir or whatever, all they do is just rubber stamp it or sign it. They may have the authority to completely veto veto it if necessary. But for the most part, the king, the emperor, the Shah, whatever he, he may go by, pretty much just rubber stamps things and li- gets to live a lavish lifestyle as a king or so-and-so. That's what the king wanted. Now, they're... Maybe some of you who are like, well, is that Islamic? I don't know. All I can say is that regardless of the structure of the government, King Zahir Shah still wanted this new government that he was trying to put together. He actually did put it together for a very short period of time. This government still had it. This constitution still stated that Sharia, Islamic law, was the law of the land. However, It would have a representative government in the form of a parliament. The king would just be a figurehead. So to some Muslims, this may not be considered the perfect system. Maybe you consider it imitating the West. I don't know. That's for the scholars to figure out. I can only go by what I can see what the man was trying to do. He was trying to put together a more representative government while still maintaining Islamic law. But of course, things are not that simple. With the introduction of a parliamentary system, this allowed for several new political parties to come to life. And this is where the downfall of Afghanistan came. One of these political parties that came to life was the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. This was essentially the Communist Party of Afghanistan. We'll discuss the PDPA more in the next episode, but suffice it to say, these guys are going to play a huge role in the next few years in Afghanistan's politics. So the king, Zahir Shah, he's trying to hold things together in Afghanistan but then there's a drought in 1972, and this drought was very severe, and it forced the Afghan government to look at other avenues of revenue. They had to find some other way to get money into their country. Right now, at this point in time, they are mostly dependent on agriculture and the Soviet Union. And with this drought, they kind of removed the agriculture thing, and that meant that they were too dependent on the Soviet Union, and they didn't really want to have that. So they tried to look for other ways to try to broaden Afghanistan's financial outlook. One of the things they had to do was try to get a closer relationship or build a closer relationship with the United States. In addition to trying to get closer to the United States, they also wanted to mend their diplomatic ties, the relationship with Pakistan and Iran. As I mentioned, the whole Pashtunistan thing, the Pashtun nationalism from Dawood Khan had really hurt the relationship with Pakistan. On the other side, on the other border was Iran, and they had a a feud, not a actual battle, just a diplomatic feud with Iran regarding the Hormuz River, which goes from one country into the other. And with this drought, it was especially critical that they try try to work this thing out and try to come to some sort of agreement regarding this river. Anyway, so Afghanistan was trying to mend relationships with their two neighbors. Remember, this is now 1972, and at this point of time, Iran was still ruled by the Shah. It had not gone through its Islamic Revolution yet. And once again, the Shah was very much pro-United States, very much in the Western camp. So the Soviet Union saw their neighbor to the south, saw their buddy, Afghanistan, the one that they had been financially supporting for decades now. They saw the the, um, the nation of Afghanistan reaching out to its Cold War enemy and its satellite nations, And the Soviet Union got kind of concerned. In July 1973, the former prime minister, the king's cousin, Dawood Khan, using his military connections, as I mentioned, he was the former, before he was a prime minister, he was the minister of defense for Afghanistan, had been in the military for a long time. Dawood Khan led a coup to overthrow the Afghanistan government. The king, Zahir Shah, he was forced to abdicate, and he went into exile in Italy. Now, I'm not going to say that the Soviet Union directly sponsored this revolution, but they absolutely knew it was going on. They, at the very least, gave a nod. They, at the very least, were happy about it or turned a blind blind eye to it. In any case, Dawood Khan, he was supported in his coup. By the Afghan military Not the entire military But several Afghan officers And most of these Afghan officers Within the military Had been trained in the Soviet Union Dawood Khan himself however Did not trust the Soviet Union And he did not really like Depending on their assistance Nor did he like the way The Soviet Union really wanted to Be all involved in meddling In Afghanistan's affairs He really didn't care for that Here's a quote I found from Dawood Khan regarding his perception of the Soviet Union. He said, quote, Our whole life, our whole existence revolves around one single focal point, freedom. Should we ever get the feeling that our freedom is in the slightest danger from whatever quarter, then we should prefer to live on dry bread or even starve sooner than accept help that would restrict our freedom. Unquote. So, Dawood Khan saw that the Soviet Union's assistance, financial assistance, came with a caveat, it came with a catch. The Soviet Union, as I mentioned, they approved Dawood Khan's coup. They thought with Dawood Khan being supported by so many Soviet-leaning Afghan officers that this was their golden ticket into Afghanistan. Dawood Khan was at the top, but his coup, his overthrowing of the government, allowed for many of these Soviet-loving Afghanistan military officers to get into positions of power. And this gave the USSR, that's the full name, well, the full acronym for the name of the Soviet Union, United Soviet Socialist Republic, if I remember correctly. This gave the USSR connections into the Afghan military and into Afghanistan's intelligence services. The USSR expected Dawood Khan to do what his cousin had tried to do, the king, the former king now, Zahir Shah. They expected Dawood Khan to be a king and a figurehead while the parliament and the government was mostly headed by these Soviet-leaning Afghans, or these communist Afghans. They expected the communist Afghans to run the country while Dawood Khan remained a figurehead. But that's not the way things worked. That's not what happened. As I mentioned, Dawood Khan had been in politics for a long time. He was prime minister for 10 years. And before that, he was the defense minister. The man was a natural politician. He was a savvy politician. Those communist Afghan military officers he brought with him during the coup, these guys were just grunts. They were just soldiers. They may have had good military training, but they didn't know how to maneuver in politics and outsmart politicians and all this sort of thing. Dawood Khan ran circles around them. They were nowhere near as sophisticated as Dawood was. And Dawood Khan ran circles around these Soviet communist, Afghan now politicians. And he was able to develop his own policies that still continue to run counter to the Soviet union's desires. He went forward to establish ties with Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And we know that both of those nations are big allies of the United States (laughs) back then and even now. This is now in uh, the mid 70s, going towards the late 70s now. So as far as Egypt is concerned, Gamal Abdel Nasser is gone by now. He's replaced by Anwar Sadat, who was initially very anti israel and seemed to be anti-the West. But once he actually actually became the leader of Egypt, he uh, did a bit of a about face. Did a bit of a 160 or 150, whatever the number is. He went and became an ally of the West. wound up signing, up, I think, the Camp David Accords. And you had the picture with Jimmy Carter holding his arms open. Bringing over, I forgot who the leader of Israel was at the time. But him and Anwar Sadat coming together to shake hands and all that kind of stuff. So he was definitely in bed with the United States and the West. And, well, we, we know what Saudi Arabia is about. The Soviet Union was concerned about this. They did not like this. Dawood Khan, however, despite his, his mistrust of the Soviet Union, he had his own flaws. He still wanted to try to modernize Afghanistan. When we say modernize, you know that's just a, another term for westernize. And his attempts to Modernize slash westernized Afghanistan, those attempts, his policies that he tried to push through, really put him on the bad side of the Islamic establishment of Afghanistan. This is something that you really have to understand. The Islamic establishment, the religious establishment, the Muslims, the, the Islamic spirit of Afghanistan is extremely strong. The Islamic spirit, is so strong in Afghanistan. I've never been there, but looking at this history, those people love themselves some Islam. And this is something that every leader has to learn to juggle in Afghanistan. And Dawood Khan completely. Misunderstood this or completely missed this. So Dawood Khan was getting it from both ends of the spectrum. Of course, the, the Soviets or the communists of Afghanistan didn't like him. The religious establishment, the Muslims of Afghanistan didn't really care for him. I presume the liberals and the elites, they seemed to like him because he was trying to westernize Afghanistan. But that's a very, very small portion of the population. Dawood Khan tried to arrest, well actually did, he ordered the arrest Of the leaders of the PDPA That's the Communist Party of Afghanistan And when he did that The Soviet Union said That's it This guy's got to go So as I mentioned The first coup That Daoud Khan led of Afghanistan When he overthrew his own cousin That one The Soviet Union Might not have been directly involved in But this one here That got him out of office Completely orchestrated by the Soviet Union In April 1978 Daoud Khan was gone I want to read this quote from an article I, I read that discusses the history of communism in Afghanistan. I'm going to read this quote about this 1978 coup. Quote, Contrary to the claims of the PDPA and the Soviet Union, what really occurred was a coup, not a revolution, launched only in Kabul by elite Soviet-trained military units, as Afghans would say, the Soviet fifth column in Kabul. The victors released the PDPA leaders from prison and turned power over to them. Thus, the pro-Soviet Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, DRA, was established. Afghans never had any doubt about the pro-Soviet nature of the people who had seized control. According to an Afghan journalist, Anyone who believed that Soviets were not involved in the 1978 coup was either uninformed about the role of Soviets in the Afghan military or was confirming Lenin's assessment that there will always be useful idiots who would inadvertently support the communist cause. Unquote. So the coup went off, Dawood Khan and his family were killed in the coup, and Afghanistan got a new leader, Nur Muhammad Taraki, who now became The president and prime minister, the man held two offices, president and prime minister of Afghanistan. Now, let's talk about this very short period of communism when communism took over Afghanistan. So, as I mentioned, Noor Taraki was the new leader of Afghanistan. Noor Taraki was also the leader of the PDPA, Afghanistan's Communist Party. But also the leader of the Kalk faction of the PDPA. The PDPA, Afghanistan's Communist Party, in 1967 has split into two factions one called Kalk, which means the people, and another called Parcham, which means banner or flag. These two Factions within the PDPA, Afghanistan's Communist Party, these two factions were mostly split along ethnic lines, with the Kulk faction, the one that North Iraqi led, being primarily Pashtun in ethnicity. Now, these two factions couldn't stand each other. They were both part of the PDPA. For some reason, they did not just create a new Communist Party, whatever, who knows. But whatever the case may be, they did unite to overthrow Dawood Khan. But as soon as the coup was over and they got rid of Dawood Khan, these two factions began fighting against each other again. So now the Soviet Union has what they want. They have a true Soviet party running Afghanistan. And as far as these two factions are concerned within the PDPA, the Soviet Union always supported both factions. So just in case, no matter who, which one came out on top, the Soviet Union would always be in the loop and always have a hand in Afghanistan. So Noor Taraki now was leader of Afghanistan, and he used his office and his new political powers to purge the opposing faction, the Parcham members, the Parcham faction of the PDPA. He purged them from office. Now, some of this purging was done peacefully, So some people who were parching members were sent on foreign assignments outside the country, pretty much putting them in political exile. Others were not so peaceful. Other people were purged in less peaceful manners. Some were arrested and some were even executed. But these moves began to further weaken Afghanistan's government, which is already pretty weak, having overcome now two coups now in barely 10 years. It was, I think it was five years, actually. So two coups in five years. So it was already weak, but now this guy is now killing people off and arresting them and sitting, shipping them overseas and everything. So he's uh, making his nation even weaker, his government, I should say, even weaker. Nur Taraki was also an idealistic communist. He really believed in the communist cause. He was very adamant about pushing communist policies forward and killing, squashing, destroying, wiping out any sort of dissent against that. He pursued this land redistribution program that really angered rural Afghans. And once again, I got to gotta remind you, most Afghans lived in the rural areas. That was an area that that... Every single government had trouble controlling. Nur Turaki executed and imprisoned thousands of Afghans who went who were bold enough to try to resist his reforms. Now I want to tell you about this quickly about this land redistribution thing. This seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of Muslim countries as they try to modernize their lands. I've seen this both in the Ottoman Empire when the what call it the uh, Young Turks took over. They tried, to, they tried a, a land redistribution program where they, well, the, much of the Islamic world, well, I can't say much of it, many parts of the Islamic world, Afghanistan, obviously, but also uh, Anatolia, uh, Bosnia, as well as Iran. We discussed this all as well in the 1979 revolution of Iran in our series from several years ago. Many parts of the Muslim world were still under a feudal system. We're talking about being on a feudal system in the nineteen seventies, nineteen sixties, and yet it was time to change. The, the feudal system was inefficient and in holding the nation as a whole back. And this is not necessarily necessarily a communist thing. Those three nations that I mentioned—Afghanistan, Iran, as well as the Ottoman Empire—all three of them tried to redistribute land. Basically, the feudal system means that large plots of land were held by. One family or one man or one powerful, wealthy landlord and a bunch of peasants ruled, uh, worked the land on behalf of that landlord. Much of the Muslim world, well, at least these three countries, let me stop saying much of the Muslim world, these three countries definitely were doing that. These three states, Afghanistan, Iran, Ottoman Empire, they were definitely doing that. And so when these new Western, westernized governments came forward, they tried to break that pattern. And each and every single time they did that, it led to revolution, it led to anger, it never works. Mostly because they did it at the, at the tip of a sword or at the barrel of a gun. They forced the people to do these sort of things and they didn't slowly bring it in, they didn't try, I don't know, all of them tried a very ham-fisted way of ramming this new system down these landlords' Lord's throats and it never worked out. They tried to take, basically, they were taking land away from the landlords, splitting up into several different pieces, and then giving it to the peasants and saying, here, here you go, work the land. This never worked as well as they expected it to. It always failed. Part of the problem was, of course, the landlords resisted it, and some of these landlords were powerful. Some of them had a lot of money and could, and could put together their own militaries if they wanted to. It broke a centuries-old system that the people were comfortable with, and the peasants who now gained this new land, they often wound up back in servitude because they didn't have the skills, they didn't have the money to buy the proper machinery and the proper tools to cultivate their land. They wound up usually selling their land back to the landlords. Or the children, as time is modernized, we're talking about the 1970s now, as time is modernized, the peasants' children didn't want to work the land. They moved to the big cities. That's what happened a lot in Iran. And so this system always failed when these nations tried to force to force the uh, landlords in the rural areas to accept this redistribution program. It always failed. I'm not saying it's not the right thing to do. I'm not saying it is the right thing to do either. But the way that they did it was not the right way of doing it. Allah knows best was what is the right way to do it or even if it should be done. I mean, I can go into a few stories about how this was actually done during the time of the of the righteous Caliphs. It's not really, let me let me back this up. There's a story, I know I'm going off track, but I'll come back, inshallah. I'll come back to the Soviet Union. There's a story where, during the time of Omar ibn Khattab, the Muslims had conquered huge parts of land, and once again, Persia. They conquered a whole bunch of Persia, and the Muslims, many of them who were Sahaba, had conquered these lands or had led militaries into conquering these new lands. And so they considered, like, this is now my land. I, I I fought for this land. I earned it with my sword and my blood. This is now my land. But Omar ibn Khattab, he wanted that land to be used to resettle Muslims in these areas to, to balance out the uh, Muslim population in these, in these areas to bring to bring more Arabs and more Muslims into these areas to to establish the Muslim authority or the Islamic authority in these new areas that they had recently conquered. There's one story where Bilal ibn Rabah, yes, the famous mother of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he resisted this. He said, "I'm not going to give up my land that I conquered with my sword." But Bilal could not <laughs> manage this whole land by himself. It, I mean, you're talking about huge tracts of land, okay? perhaps hundreds and hundreds of miles, of square miles of land. And he didn't, like, inherit this from his father. He conquered it at the behest of the military commander. And he conquered it at the behest of the ruler or the caliphah. And so, Omar ibn Khattab, he had to force Bilal. I I say force, he didn't hurt him anything. He just said, Bilal, you going to listen to me. He basically told Bilal, you're going to follow orders and follow my, <laughs> my decrees. You're going to go ahead and let me take this land and redistribute it out to uh, other Muslims so we can populate this region with more Muslims. So that's basically what happened. That's the one example of redistribution from the, prof- not the Prophet's time, from the Sahaba's time. But it's not the same thing. It is not the same thing as this where these uh, communists, and they weren't doing it for Islamic purposes anyway, they're doing it for atheistic purposes, where these communists were basically taking land from these landlords, these landowners, these feudal lords who had held it for generations, taking it and now giving it to these peasants who really didn't have the sophistication to manage them, and it turned out horribly for everyone involved. I know, I went on a very long digression to get to this point. Back to the story, (laughs) okay, back to the story. Nur Taraki, he began to execute and kill and imprison people who resisted his reforms. This included both conservative Muslims. These were mostly the Muslims in the hinterlands or in the rural areas who opposed his redistribution programs and opposed communism, period, because they saw communism was an atheistic form of government and they hated it, rightfully so. Yeah, I'm saying it, rightfully so. And then he also had... Um, opposition from the elites, the liberal side. The elites, the academics, those Afghans who have studied in the West or who have studied uh, to university level in Afghanistan, many of these liberals supported liberal ideas and free speech. And with Noor Taraki executing and killing all of them, or many of them, I should say, they didn't like him either. So both the conservatives and the liberals hated Noor Taraki and his government. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union is trying to prop up Taraki's government, North Taraki's government. In late 1978, they began sending military advisors and equipment into Afghanistan. This was all part of a joint effort to create a Soviet-sponsored security zone in Asia. In other words, this is the Soviet Union trying to maintain the Westerners and the United States that have too much power in this part of Asia. Okay, now let's talk about what happened in February 1979. This is not directly related to the overall story of the Soviet-Afghan war, but it does give an example of how chaotic things were becoming in Afghanistan. February 1979, the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Adolf Dubbs, was kidnapped by a group of Afghan militants. North Iraqi security forces tracked them down, and attempted to rescue the ambassador against the United States' wishes. The United States wanted to negotiate, or perhaps in their own uh, security forces, or I will say special forces, to go rescue the ambassador. But Northuraki tried to do it on his own, it led to a shootout with the militants, and the ambassador, Adolf Dubs was killed in the fighting. That's it. <laughs> There's nothing more to it. It's just an example of how Chaotic things were coming in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, in the rural areas, a rebellion was beginning against North Iraqi's communist policies. The landlords, the the Muslims, the conservative part of Afghanistan was tired of it, and they were starting to rebel. The Afghan communist elites, those who were running the country, mostly from the major cities like Kabul and Kandahar and places like that, they were completely delusional about this rebellion. This is what often happens in my readings of any of these ridiculous governments where they try to rule everything by force. The people in the cities, in the capital, usually where the government is situated, they're surrounded by yes-men, they're surrounded by elites, they're surrounded by academics, by people who are going to support their policies for the most part. They are completely delusional and oblivious to the way most people particularly those in the rural areas, really think. I'm going to read you this quote from a book called The Great Gamble by Gregory Pfeiffer. Quote, The rector of Kabul University before the April Revolution, Abdurrahman Jalili, had been educated in the West. He attended college and graduate school in Wyoming and spoke English flawlessly. Now, he believed the PDPA's reforms however ruthlessly implemented, had set his country on the right course, specifically that the revolution would help pull the Afghan people out of illiteracy and poverty. He also believed most of them supported the government's efforts. The pivotal Herat uprising in April 1979, he thought, was orchestrated by military officers with ties to Iran, and far fewer civilians died in the violence than the rebels claimed. Unquote. It's going longer than I thought it would, but there's a lot more to talk about. But inshallah, we'll get to it in the next episode. But I want to talk about this Herat uprising, and then we'll go ahead and wrap it up, inshallah. The rebellion in the rural areas, as I mentioned, that was heating up in opposition to Taraki's communist parties. The rebellion in the rural areas led to an attack on Herat in April 1979. Herat is in western Afghanistan, like 385 miles west of Kabul, really much closer to the border of Iran. So once you get a perspective of where it's really located. So a rebellion began in Herat, or the rebellion finally reached Herat. Let's put it like that. The Afghanistan government sent the army's 7th Division to go and squash the rebellion. However, the 7th Division eventually defected and joined the rebels. Now, what I, from what I've read, there's different stories, but from what I've read, the reason why this happened was that when the army arrived, when the 7th Division arrived in Herat, there were crowds going on, a lot of chaos, and for whatever reason, some of the units within this division began opening fire on civilians. Other units within this division saw this happening and turned their guns on those soldiers who were firing on the civilians. They killed those units who were firing on the civilians, that is, and wound up saying, "Okay, we're not going to support this corrupt society, this corrupt government. We're going to join the rebels. And that's what they did. The rebels, who were really just rebels at the time, just peasants and farmers and and regular people who were just tired of the communist policies and the communist government. Now they had an entire military division on their side. So the 7th Division helped or allowed, really helped the rebels gain access to military stockpiles. So now the rebels had access to military grade weapons. With this new power, so to speak, the rebels went through the city of Herat, killing Soviet diplomats, Afghan government government officials, and pretty much took over the city. So now the government had to do something new. They sent in warplanes, Soviet-built warplanes, to launch airstrikes against the rebels in Herat. Meanwhile, more military units came and surrounded the city, and Nur Taraki made sure that these units were loyal to his government. More military units came on and surrounded the city, with the airstrikes pounding the rebels inside of Herat and the city surrounded. This weakened the rebels, and the government troops moved in. Then there was heavy fighting for a few days, but eventually the government retook Herat. I've heard lots of different numbers about how many people were killed during this uprising. I've heard some as low as three thousand, some as high as ten thousand. I don't know. With airstrikes and stuff going on, I'm going to go towards the higher number, somewhere between five to ten thousand is my my guess. Allah knows best. Anyway, the point is that the government had already lost for a short period of time one of its major cities, and the events in Harat. Further weakened Nur and with him further weakened, his deputy prime minister Hafizullah Amin became the prime minister. As I mentioned earlier, Nur when he overthrew Dawood Khan, he took two entire positions of government, both president and prime minister. But after this fiasco in Herat, after these events in Herat, his his deputy prime minister Hafizullah Amin became full Prime Minister. We're going to talk more about Hafizullah I Amin mean, in the next episode, inshallah. We're going to have to stop here. I'm, I'm getting closer to an hour. I didn't mean for it to go this long, but alhamdulillah, mashallah. We'll we'll continue in the next episode. We'll talk about Hafizullah I Amin mean, and what eventually led to the Soviets coming into Afghanistan. And we'll continue our story, inshallah. That'll be in the next episode. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.